Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, oh my gosh, one of the greatest front people of all time, an incredible uh, folk artist as well, a just just a legend, there's no other way to put it, from the band Avail, and also from his own, you know, under his own name too, as a as a as a musician for years years longer than the Avail thing, but uh, a legend nonetheless. Tim Barry is on the show today, and oh my gosh, I am excited for you to hear this one. This is a good one. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire Tristan thank you so much for all the hard work you do for the show I really appreciate it and he will get the message to me he also runs an Instagram and a Facebook page for this podcast both are found at turned out a punk you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien to support the show tell all your friends about it let them all know about this thing subscribe to it rate it write a review or just go over to turnedoutapunk.com and grab a t-shirt I finally got a couple t-shirts myself, and uh, man, these things look incredible. Thank you, Corey, for for doing such great work on these shirts. Oh, took me forever to get ones myself, you know? I'm, I'm dealing with the Canadian uh, mail system, so anyway, very happy to have them. And you should have one, too. And that is it for ways to support the show. Uh, I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. More information can be found at fuckedup.cc. We're going to be doing two shows at the end of October, Halloween, Fucked Up Fest, as we used to call it. Now it's back. We're going to be doing sets, uh, I guess I guess just the old stuff for two sets. So if you're, if you're around or you want to come to Toronto, Toronto's amazing in the fall. So come up and check out those shows. And maybe I'll do a live podcast. Maybe I'll figure out doing a live podcast during the day. Just literally thought of that right now. Okay. <laughs> I got to figure out how to do it. <laughs> Uh, but okay, anyway, more on that in the future, on to today's show. Today on the show, Tim Barry from Avail is here, and oh my gosh, am I am I excited for you to hear this. Uh, Tim is someone that, as I kind of said off the top, I've looked up to for a very long time, and as I tell him off the top of the episode, someone I've definitely punished before, backstage, opening for him, and anyway... Uh, t- it, it's great to finally have him on the show. And as I said, also off the top, he has been putting out records under his own name for years now, and they are all fantastic. Really, someone who, you know, we talked about this in the episode, so I don't want to spoil it, but really has had many careers inside of this uh, music career of his. His latest album, Spring Hill, is unbelievable. It is out now. You can find out more information about Tim Barry solo stuff at timberryra.com and uh, it's got some tour dates up there and you can find out about where to get the records and things like that but also on streaming platforms now and for avail dates you want to go over to availrichmond.com and avail is going to be playing some shows leading up until they go to the fest and Tim's also going to be playing the fest in Gainesville I think everyone does I'm, I'm jealous I've never gotten to do it but you know, we always do fucked up shit on the same weekend, so it never really worked out. But uh, Avail's going to be making it happen. They've also got some shows in Irving Plaza. And if you have never seen Avail, oh my gosh, you need to see Avail because they are, uh, they're just one of those bands. Uh, also, Satiate, the first album has been reissued, and you can pick that up on the website as well. Well, I'm not going to yammer on anymore. Sit back, relax, and listen to Tim Berry on Turned out a punk tim thank you so much for coming on the show you are very welcome well it's funny uh, oh go on i like sorry. how i wait hold on but we, before you went live we were just talking to you said it's it's nice to talk to you as a peer yes the thing about punk is that we are all peers true very true but i was a punishing peer for a long time, and now oh. I feel like it's at least an appropriate way for me to punish you about punk. Whereas before, I was just doing it as a kid at a show that was, you know, far did too, you, <laughs> far too inquisitive. Where, where, did you talk to me all the time? Were you and a punisher? I was a bit of a punisher. I gotta say, I was. <laughs> I I I saw you guys 
many times, but I there was I one time I opened for you at, in Toronto, and uh, it's a veil or solo. A veil. Okay. We op- I op- it was at Ted's Wrecking Yard, and I was in a band called Promise Kept, and we got the call last minute because someone couldn't get across the border or something mm-hmm. to open, and it was still remains one of the top ten experiences of my life i'm sure we were not a very good band <laughs> but uh that show was just unbelievable and getting to do that after all these years still remains like a highlight in my life that's awesome um but this is not about me this is about you and i gotta start this <laughs> off the way they all start off which is tim how'd you get into punk remember the first time you ever came across it man it oddly i didn't get into punk like most people who got into it through skating and Thrasher and that community. I came into it from a very different place. And um, it was very accidental. A lot of it has to do with with having a a brother who's a couple years older than me. Um, But when I was a kid, um, my dad had to do some training in London, England. And we moved from Virginia to London for a year when I was a preteen. And so my brother's just a couple years older, and that's the big deal back then. And he was out and about going to shows. He, like, got into metal. Uh, he went to a couple metal shows. And then then uh, he ended up taking me to uh, the Marquee in London to see a French punk band. And this is before slam dancing was exploited by MTV and a bunch of French punks and English punks started slam dancing. And I, and I was a little metalhead kid who was up front ready to headbang. And I had no idea what was happening. And I was instantly hooked by the energy and the abrasiveness and the chaos of punk. I don't know who the band was. Uh, it was a really small show, you know, like you, what you would consider like, you know, like a Tuesday night show in, in Toronto where there's like 50 people type yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, and I got hooked since then, like ever since then. And it was the energy. It was the exchange. It was the idea that the band and the crowd were working together, which we still do. And that's what how we started. This is that really from that moment, you know, we were peers. We weren't, you know, it's classic old school thing to say about punk but there is no division between the, the stage and the audience at that show and i was hooked but so then i grew up listening to you know a lot of metal music i was like the metal head at school back in virginia and then later on the big crossover came and and the punks were interested in bands like slayer when rain and blood came out and I was interested in knowing about bands like the Circle Jerks and Suicidal Tendencies and stuff like that. And then we all kind of sort of cross-pollinated. And and I was always into punk from then on. Going back to England, uh, have you ever tried to find who that French band was? Like, what kind of style was it? Was it like thrashy or was it more Oh, I couldn't of... tell you because it, uh, it was new to me. I'd yeah. never heard anything like it. So that, you know, like I've been exposed to bands like Iron Maiden and Venom and, um, you know, death metal. Uh, Thrash was not really. um, I mean, there was thrash metal in San Francisco and stuff like that, but I don't think we called it thrash back then. So Metallica had just put out their demos and like um, uh, not Ride the Lightning, but um, Kill Em All. So this is, you know, this is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it's it's interesting. The more you know, I've been involved in punk most of my life, and um, and music most of my life. You know, even the folk music that I play now is presented as a punk playing folk music. It's not folk punk. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's folk music played by an old punk. Yeah, but um, but you know, like even like on on the road and stuff, everybody's always talking about skating and how they got into punk through skating, and I really did not. That's not my path. Mm-hmm. I was the kid on the BMX bike with long hair in a you know a jean battle battle vest jean jacket with a venom patch on the back and circle jerks written on the bottom selling you drugs, smoking <laughs> Marlboro Reds, and stealing parents' liquor. 
So were there any local bands that you were kind of getting into at the time? So in Virginia, where we grew up in the suburbs, where I grew up, um, there was a very small community of people who played music and we did house shows mm -hmm. very regularly. I was in a band uh, called Learning Disabled Kids, which was sort of like a ripoff of uh, the California punk band Rich Kids on LSD. Oh, you can kind of get that vibe from it. Um, but I was the drummer in that band. Before that, I was always in metal bands. But we all did like house shows and stuff like that. And because the suburbs in Virginia where I grew up, it was a short way to Richmond. We were seeing bands like Four Walls Falling and um, other great uh, of the Arab Richmond punk bands and straight edge bands. And then we could also get up to DC and Baltimore. Baltimore had a ton of metal shows. Then we would go into DC to see bands like Fugazi and uh, uh, Dag Nasty and all of those kind of things. So, so there was a community within the, where we grew up, which mainly was skaters and stuff like that. And we were all doing shows and then we were able to sort of branch out and go see live music. You know, unlike now you just kind of watch it on the computer. We were interacting and we had, you know, we had valid opinions like, oh, the people in D.C. are pretty mean to us because we're really aggressive. And the dudes in Baltimore are tougher than any motherfuckers we've ever met in our entire lives. And the folks down in Richmond are pretty nice and pretty open, you know. So yeah. it was a trip. It's interesting how every scene had that kind of local flavor to it. And it's like reflective of the bands like Four Walls Falling and Gut Instinct have very different vibes in terms of a band. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Did you ever see Gut Instinct? Oh, yeah. They must have been some heavy shows back then. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, those shows were wild. But shit, we would go down and see COC and stuff like that in Raleigh, you know? Mm -hmm. So, there, I mean, we had a pretty broad sort of thing. I remember seeing Metallica in uh, Hampton Roads, and that was a whole nother vibe, like a, just a whole nother, like, I don't know. It was, I think being a kid and going out to shows and traveling for them was a real experience. It was a real eye opener. And I guess that never really changed because then eventually Avail started touring and we never stopped. And then Avail stopped and I never stopped touring, doing my solo stuff. And then, I mean, I've spent my whole life on the road. And I think it's, it's interacting on the road and seeing all those places that makes it all feel so small and connected. Do you still find there's that kind of like, you know, distinct local vibes to scenes or is it becoming a lot more kind of universal in experience now? No, I don't think that there is a distinct vibe to not only the music community, but like, you know, locally, but um, to. Um, it's weird. I mean, I, I talked to my kids about this. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a, a, my buddy jason about this not long ago too is like it's like there's no accents anymore like you can't tell where people are from by the way they talk there's no specific foods anymore um hardcore sounds kind of the same all the way across the country um mm -hmm. not not all the way you know what i'm saying country music's kind of the same way um it's interesting i think as you know i use that word we, we're all connected it's we are all connected so much that there's not a lot of distinctness. I remember being a kid and, and you could tell if you were, if you were visiting from California here in Richmond and you said, Hella, I would know you were from Northern California. Yes, absolutely. If you said, if you said hell of, I would know that you were from Southern California. <laughs> if you talked, you know, with a deep Southern accent, I would know you were from Mississippi. Um, and, and it, you know, like I know people from Mississippi who have no accents at all. If you had that strong working class, I'm taking the car to Warwick Mall. I know that you were from New England. And if it was even different dialect, you were from Maine. And it seems strange that, that that's not like that. But the same thing with food. My kids just recently had macaroni and cheese balls. Have you ever had these things? Macaroni in a ball, uh, breaded and thrown in a, a deep fryer. That sounds amazing, right? but no. <laughs> Delicious. They had them at Whole Foods. Um, so my kids were enamored with these things, of course, because they're kids and deep fried macaroni. Of course, yeah. awesome. They ain't no pooza over in Montreal. But um, 
But uh, I explained that in, when I was younger, when we would tour, that was something you could get at truck stops in Indiana. Mm. And now you can get it at Whole Foods across the country or how you could get clam cakes in, in um, Narragansett, Rhode Island, and how you could get um, you know, certain kinds of barbecue in North Carolina or South Carolina. It just seems like everything is everywhere now, yeah, including music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating, especially looking at like obviously because punk's so small, so I think it's really easy to study it. But like you look at the effects of certain records hitting certain scenes, right? Like the Empire LP, which sold nothing in England, hits DC and affects that whole sound, and ultimately punk forever. But it was just because things were so small then and so localized, it feels like the slightest shift could alter things completely. It really did too. That's a really interesting point because, you know, like when, when an older kid where we grew up showed up with a new record and how we just took it in and analyzed it and stared at it for secret clues and, listened to it backwards and then took that into our songs like it really would really and then you know then there would be the people of the opinion that the record was great and the other people would there was the tribe of people who didn't like it but really there's so much now i mean you scroll through you know like i even have trouble you know listening to a whole song Sometimes if somebody offers me something new, I'm like, shit, I've already heard this. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. first course and I'm out. I'm going, I'm, I'm going backwards though. I just, you can ask Leela and Coralie, my kids, like the only time they ever see me upset is staring at the computer and dealing with the computer. I'm just taking, I'm stepping back from it. We listen to records. We always have. I'm just cutting everything else out. Not that I'm a Luddite, but I really like, I find no joy in online existence um and i'm responsible for my own joy my own happiness so i really i'm absorbing records like like i did when i was a kid i'm playing them backwards i'm looking for secret clues reading the lyrics along to them i was telling one of my kids struggles with with reading and i always did too i just really couldn't read until i was in my early 20s and um I mean, truly couldn't even understand what I was looking at. And I, and I, I explained to them that the way I really learned to read was putting on a record and reading the lyrics along as the person was saying, um, whatever they were saying as yeah. fast as they could sometimes. So for memorization and for just like focus, like the, the way you'd focus on records and music, it's its so different than now. And like, you can't blame kids. Like I can't blame my kids that they don't, you know, have the patience for me to sit here and put on a record and, and, you know, dust out the liner notes for them to look at. Like, cause the world, like you're saying, there's just so much information and everything's available at all times now. And it's, it's interesting because like, no one really seems happy with online existence and we still could go back. Like we could go back and do it the old ways. Like we still have the tools, but it feels like we are all, you know, addicted to the convenience of it. You know, give me convenience or give me death. Like Jello was right. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. So like, so I'm, I'm easy to criticize it on a personal level, but I'm also dependent on it on a financial level because Mm -hmm like using the pandemic as an example if i couldn't have like promoted my records and like done online shows and stuff like that i mean i'm I'm so thankful that i was able to do that and like make enough money during that period to just record a new record I, you know what i'm saying like um it is true that we have the ability to go back it's a lot of philosophy to consider um you know, if you break it down, like, at, you know, within like eight months of everywhere that Facebook is introduced, the country's democracy starts faltering. I mean, um, there's a lot to think about with that kind of stuff. There's a lot of convenience. There's very little consequence for online action in my life. You know, like if you, you know, there's offline consequences to online actions in my community. Yeah. But the, but the, but the 
I guess the question is, where do we go from here as like independently thinking musicians and artists and how do we use it to our benefit and with caution and with our own happiness in mind? I, yeah, like I, I struggle with raising my kids, especially during the pandemic where we would limit screen time, right? Like, I think we thought that was the responsible thing to do. But then during the pandemic where the screen became not only a screen, but a window to, to their friends and, and a place they could kind of like connect with their buddies again, it was like, well, I guess we kind of have to re-examine this thing. And, and it's, I struggle with it every day. Like, am I doing the right thing as a parent? Like maybe I should be pushing them and playing video games more so they can make millions of dollars. Like some of these kids are doing <laughs> That's what I, you know what we don't use computers like at all really we don't have like we have an iPad and all that stuff um, you know what's crazy my kids don't use an iPad maybe once every three months they're allowed to use it for maybe twenty minutes or the duration of the podcast that we're doing right now <laughs> yeah, this okay. is like the biggest treat in the world. I got a kid sitting in a room staring at a fucking iPad, and it's your fault. Uh, I appreciate the sacrifice you're making for the cause. Leela, are you watching the iPad? She ain't even answering. She don't yeah. even hear me. She's in. She's in. <laughs> She's never getting out. And I'm blaming you, the friendly friends from up north. Well, that's 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 Canadians. Like all the root, the root of all America's problems. Look at where all these people come from. They're all Canadians. Gavin McGinnis and Jordan Peterson. Like true. You know, it's a Canadian thing that we inflicted on America. Speaking of Canada, when we were talking about how foods were very geographically dispersed, man, did they? I was just up doing Pusa in Montreal, Pusa Fest in Montreal, not long ago. And my kids were just obsessed with this concept of poutine. And we don't really yeah. have good poutine down here. And nope. I was like using that as a really great example. I love it when people uh, use music as an excuse to live their lives. An example would be that Avail just did this big festival called Over the James Fest. This one that we curated and just started. And I loved how many people used that as an excuse to go out and do something fun as hell it's not about avail it's about the experience of getting together and going somewhere and sharing an experience so now the kids have been using that sort of um frame of thought as an example of all right we're going to canada and we're gonna eat poutine and then we're gonna just drive home <laughs> <laughs> well it's, it's funny because before like you can get, get before you can get perfectly good poutine at the 7-eleven down the street or the Starbucks. <laughs> trust me we got nashville hot chicken fingers at the amusement park yesterday and they were not as good as as anywhere in nashville <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh the um the, the the funny thing about that festival you just put on is i always kind of like i remember at the time like for having friends that were in a jam bands and like loving these jam bands. And I, I would, and they would be like, wouldn't you ever want to go and see a band in this kind of setting? And the only band I'd want to see in that kind of setting would be a veil. And I always kind of had this fantasy of a veil becoming uh, a jam band in a way that you have, <laughs> you know, like traveling because that's what kids did back then. Like, you know, you go these from one fest to another and then basement shows in between and you'd see, kids traveling from avail shows or for avail shows everywhere. And it was really kind of like, I don't know, like an awesome community and a micro community within a community type thing. It's weird being a participant in that because as it's happening, you don't know. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? hundred like, percent. Maybe, 100%. maybe we didn't know that it was special. You know, maybe we just, for whatever reason, we were just out playing music. I don't know. I mean, I mean, like a bunch of migratory birds, I mean, we really just were just like with the seasons we had, you know, after 20 something years, you're like, we do the same sort of thing around the same time, you know, like, and a lot of people are joining in, you know, again, like migratory birds. I wonder if so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so are going to be traveling along with us or how many people are coming in the van or, you know, um, 
I don't think we realized any of that until we broke up and then did those reunion shows. Mm. I don't think we realized how special it was until we took an opportunity to step back and gain perspective. In fact, I, I think that that we're all still surprised by people's interest and to the point where like like say those reunion shows available did two reunion shows and i came out the years are getting so broken in my head what was it 2019 july 2019 yeah. um i mean <laughs> the guys were so concerned about selling out one show in a, in a 1200 capacity club that it was just like humbling to hear them thinking that maybe we shouldn't even consider playing a venue that big yeah so it's pretty neat it's well pretty it's neat to be a part of that well i think it, like as much as you need a break from it as a band i think i think the people around the band need a break from it you know it's like people need a second especially now where there's so much information people need a second to process what they saw or what they didn't see and what they missed out on. And I think that's part of the process in, in kind of canonizing something. Yeah, and, you know, Vale's lucky because we stopped touring right at the technological transition of everything in your life being documented. So, like, people can upload their VHS recordings of Avail shows but that's about all y'all got you know what i mean like there's some like later stuff that you can find online but it's kind of cool because it just leaves it to memory does that make sense the band is left to those who experienced it instead of those who are rehashing it um by something that they filmed 15 years ago we stopped before everybody we had we had flip phones when Avail stopped but and I, it's also important, like, when you stop doing something, it's like, I don't identify myself as the person from Avail. I'm, I'm Tim first. It's not a part of my identity. It's always actually surprising when people associate me only with that because I do so many other things. Um, so stepping back, realizing that you are something outside of this musical unit and recognizing that the people who enjoyed it had to actually experience it in real life instead of just like the digital world and then being able to come back and do it again is kind of really exciting you know it's it's, it's again like humbling too um to kind of put all of those things in perspective well it's 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 funny how people like fetishize and fixate snapshots of your life creatively and i don't mean your life i mean like musicians lives or or anyone creative's life you know and they and you know it's a we we these are long lives hopefully that we're all living and yeah the, the reality is this six-year span of creative output is incredible but it's only like a six-year span or like you know it's funny i talk to people on this podcast and i'm literally fixated on they're like, yeah, that was like a six month period of my life. <laughs> like that was all it was like, and then I was out and I, you know, here I am 40 years later with some of these people, like, you know, being like, yeah, but that changed everything. That six months of your life, the ripple effects are still being felt. So I understand it from both sides because I also feel the same way as a musician. Like, I'm like, it's just like a little part of my life. You really just said that so well. <laughs> I mean, I can't even explain it to you. And then, like, there's so many people that I see, yeah, like, either, you know, almost being, I don't, I'm so bad with words, but that's vilified from that six months or, like, worship for those six months. Yeah. And then you look at them and they're, like, 45 and you're, like, man, that motherfucker wrote that shit when they were 17. <laughs> they're a completely different person. Oh, and yeah. You said that you said that so well. And then, you know, I have that. So for people who like uh, have have for many years supported the music that I make. They'll understand what I'm what I'm about to say. But for others, it's a little confusing because. All right. So if I'm walking around and someone comes up to me 
to say like, hey, I'm really, you know, I really love your music. I instantly got to go, okay, are they talking about a veil? Is this someone I used to work with? Because I worked a lot of jobs with a lot of people. You know, or, you know, if they say, what's up, Tim, or whatever, I'm like, all right, did I work with them? Is this a veil? Is this a train kid who thinks I'm a drunken hobo? Is this the parent who thinks I'm like super dad and married? Uh, is this the, the, it, all of my phases are documented in these fucking records is my point. <laughs> yeah. And I have to instantly recognize what phase people are, are, are viewing me as because it's that six month thing that you're talking about. And like all of those phases make who I am still to this day. But it's interesting, like instantly having to recognize, like, is this a friend? Is this a person who just knows me for music? If they know me for music, are they going to ask me to go in the woods and drink beer and ride trains? Because <laughs> I would love to do that. <laughs> or are they going to ask me to go on a play date because they know I'm a dad? Or are they going to ask me to go to the punk show? <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. And I want to like, do all of those things. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because, like, you know, it comes up on here a lot, like, just i guess and it's a lack it's maybe because people are trying to fill a spiritual void but the amount of these sort of like punk figures icons you know yourself included like you know you end up putting people on a pedestal and it's almost like you're worshiping an avatar of this person but like you know like ian mckay like comes up a lot in terms of like filling this role in people's life where he becomes almost like an internalized moral compass for David Bazan talked about it when he was on the show or Ben Gibbard talked about it where, you know, you're kind of like always like, oh, what would Ian do type thing in these situations? But it's funny to think about like Ian at like 90 years old receiving an honorary doctorate and then some guy coming up like, hey, motherfucker, I want to challenge you about straight edge. Like, I wanna... <laughs> are you drinking wine? Yeah, like it's this, <laughs> this thing you wrote. To be straight edge. <laughs> this thing you wrote at 19. <laughs> It's like, He's a really good example of what you're talking about. The one that I just tried to summarize of myself is just the phases of of writing. And Ian Mackay is a perfect example of like you know the, the straight edge days, and then sort of the egg hunt, and then and then the Fugazi like artistic era, and then the more adult like the Evens and all that kind of stuff. And it's like how you. Yeah, it's like what era he's in. But you, that's a really good example of a person that. Oh man, I just to walk in some people's shoes sometimes and always be judged, you know, like, like I don't, you know, so like a lot of those people that you're like Ian McKay, I mean, he's like, that's a, those are some very strong opinions that have been put out there and people love to challenge opinions, especially in 2022, you know, mm -hmm. maybe I'm in, in, in go, going back to me, I guess I'm thankful that mine are just basically my songs are more like stories um, usually in first person, but about other people. So it's not, not as much judgment going on. Yeah. Like, I think that's the, uh, that that's the reality we're kind of dealing with is these things almost become like sacred texts for some people in the way mm -hmm. that they're like, they can't divorce them from the time or place that they're from. And they become, what is it? It becomes like a religion, you know, and in some places it becomes very scarily like religion in punk and hardcore in the way that people take some of the stuff very seriously and like, God, Jello got his legs broken over it, you know, and, or, or mean, hardline or something crazy to think back on something like that. That <laughs> like so someone, nuts. someone, someone is so angry that they break a person's legs, you know, maliciously. I mean, of course that's going to happen when people dance. Of course that happens at shows. It's a part of the territory, you know, like, um, with aggressive music, but Jesus Christ, I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy. I thinking back, you know, Dan Ozzy's fantastic book, Sellout, was a really cool document of, you know, a, a, a an interesting era in people's opinions about what musicians do, which is really just uh, private decisions to begin with. Um, but I think back on Avail. I mean, Avail used to get tore up about shit yeah you're talking yeah. the religion of it the extremism of of um any counterculture every counterculture has layers and in every layer there's some form of extremism that 
often is the most potent and vocal and listened to. I remember Avail when we signed to look out, signed to look out. I mean, Jesus Christ, like it sounds like something, but there's no signature. It's Larry Livermore, who is the sweetest and smartest guy who's putting out records for bands that he likes, like mm -hmm. signed. It sounds so epic, but truthfully, it's just like, that's cool. Hell yeah, thanks. You know, like, let's do this. But that's when uh, Lookout Records was getting into the stores and there needed to be a UPC code on the record. That was it. Avail's is a sellout. Avail has a UPC code on their cassette tape of Dixie. Those like, millionaires. Out, out of their fucking minds. Angry. Letters. Shit. Sent in boxes to our P.O. box. Like, anything you can imagine. They'd try to kill us if they could, but they can't. So yeah. they didn't. But <laughs> it's like, I wish you could see it. There's like a blurry fucking line on my chest somewhere in it. And it's the UPC code. Just not not the, the lines, but just the number on the UPC code of Dixie. Yeah. Or the drummer got it as well. But yeah, people get so angry. And you think that like somebody would break someone's legs over something as trivial as that. Well, you know, and I, I think you were the first person I ever read an interview with that kind of put in perspective when Avail was kind of approached by a major label at a certain point and talking about how, like, none of us have health insurance. Like, this is a, a reality of if this is going to be a job, which is people want to see your band play their town, right? So they want it to be your job. And if it's going to be your job, there's there's certain things you need to do to be able to provide for the people around you or even yourself in terms of, like, health care or just shelter and things like that. So I don't know. It, 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 it and, and I know it's now kind of a moot point as we're all part of the same sort of streaming service monoliths and stuff. And it seems different now, but at the same time, like my empathy for bands after that interview went up immensely that signed with major labels. And ultimately you didn't even sign the major label, but you still no. had No, I had a wallet full of cards avail got courted during the big major label thing towards the end i would i would suspect i don't not really go with the timeline but when avail started getting hollered at it was um it was right before we would have recorded over the james mm -hmm. so had avail gone to a major label it would over the james would have been the record and i think back on that musically only right now um of what over the James, the album would sound like with a major label funded producer in a really nice studio in Los Angeles. I wonder what would have changed. I wonder what would have stayed the same. Um, it wouldn't be over the James mm. without a doubt. I don't think they have it. There's a hit on there as far as the mainstream. Or they would have taken the one hit, which is called Scuffle Town, which is it's a beautiful, beautiful day. Incredible and they would have extended it to like three and a half minutes yeah. instead of the one minute and 10 seconds that it is now. You know, I just wonder. I'm curious. But that was a weird, you know, we we marinated on on the major label thing for a little bit. Um, and, and had some pretty intense discussions about it. And really, that's what it came down to was... You know, there's families involved. There's kids. We have no health insurance. We're playing shows that cost five to eight dollars. Sure, five hundred people are showing up to some of them, but in the end, like, do the math. It, it's not. We're not making money. Like mm -hmm. we were making enough money to to be off the road for a month and then back on the road. It was just, yeah. So what would have happened? Would I mean? My guess is we would have flopped. I think over the James would have sucked the life out of us. We would have gone on tour. At that point, we also didn't do support tours. We'd always gone with the ethics of like, we can do this without opening for people. And we never open for bands ever. I mean, we'd open for bands, so we wouldn't do big tours. Yeah. So we hadn't done um, any support tours. The very first support tour we did was went over the James was out and that was five weeks in Europe. And then we came back one day off and we opened for the suicide machines. And that was our very first support tour. It was fantastic. And we bonded with them for life. 
um, and then realize the camaraderie of sharing the road with another band in that sort of way. But I think Over the Genius would have sucked the life out of us. We would have gone on that commercial radio tour route, and I think we would have split up, and that would have been it. Yeah, I, maybe, maybe I'm not being optimistic, but I just don't see it going any other way. So I think we did the right thing. I think it's interesting to look at like Chumbawamba and, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to them in terms of like, obviously they have that one hit that's massive, like arguably one of the biggest songs of the era, but it kind of undercut everything they did prior to, you know, in a way like not, not like I'd still love all their stuff, but I think like no one pays attention to the stuff they did prior to. And I don't think it's looked at in the same way it would have been. It would have been exactly. I think you're right. You know what? Interesting. You bring up Chumbawamba because whenever someone says major label avail and I go back to that time period, I can see my fucking wallet that was filled with A&R reps cards. <laughs> and it went as far as us like getting flown around, like doing like the kind of thing where we get bring trash bags and fill them up with CDs and sell them back down here at Play Nine Records for rent. Like all the normal stuff, the pranks that we all everyone's aware of that we took advantage of record labels to get free meals and free you know bars and free hotels and free flights like avail did all that we're guilty of it yeah. but the one thing that i always remember is that who who was chumba did they sign to what did they sign to capra is it um, atlantic maybe or because I, I, it was the, atlantic I've got the 45 uh, of, of Tump Thumping over there somewhere. Okay. Well, it's that, that's the song, right? That's the hit, Tump yeah, Thumping. Yeah. Oh, I get knocked down. Okay. I, I love Chumbawamba. I love the live records like that, that we used to listen to and stuff like that. But this is where my brain always goes. Whatever major label signed Chumbawamba, they were hollering at me for a veil. And at one point, the A&R rep sent me a cassette tape just a, a copy of a cassette of tub thumping and one other single that chumbawamba had just recorded as a way of saying hey look chumba just signed to our record label check out their two new songs you might like them we'd love to have you and i love chumbawamba yeah so i put the cassette tape in and that fucking song, I Get Knocked Down, is so good that I couldn't take it out. And then the damn song, the cassette, ended up in the tour van. And we listened to the damn song over and over and over and over and over again. And then got tired of it. Then their record came out. And you couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song. So we listened to it for six months. Then it came out, and we had to hear it for two more years. <laughs> lose our minds. But whenever I think about the major labels, I always think about them saying, well, look, Chumba signed. They're anarchists. You could sign to our record label. And then that song haunted me for years. <laughs> it hasn't well, but they would be the, and I guess they're the closest thing in terms of like a, a punk band that's actually living it that then tries to make that move for like, you know, and they, I'm sure they did it for strategic reasons too, like thinking about getting the message out to more people, but it's, I don't know. I, I, I think about this stuff a lot and I look at this stuff and obviously I think calling my band fucked up. I, I insulated myself from ever having to make these decisions in any sort well, of yeah. way. But and that's how they would spell it with a V, V or F V. <laughs> <laughs> they still can't say it on TV. Effed up does not translate well, and so they're not. You know, I think I think I'm safe, but it's it's. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It is fascinating to think of like what would have changed and what would have say the same. I I saw you on in Europe on that run because that was with No Use for a Name in London. I think. Oh, that was the um when we were on that deconstruction tour. Deconstruction. That was it. Yeah, it was like yeah. The, that uh, would have been after that. Oh, that was yeah. the next tour, yeah. I guess. Over. No, this that would have been when we by then we were on Fat. Okay, yeah, because the EP had just come out on Fat, the first release, a thousand yeah. times, one hundred times. Yeah, times that and that was, yeah, that's all just uh, record label transition confusion. It's that's kind of all kind of irrelevant. That was one hundred times is sort of an obscured European release of maybe 
five re-recorded songs from our lookout days as like an introduction because we were doing that deconstruction tour in Europe. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I guess going back to Richmond was honor roll ever a band you were into because that's the only band I oh, could see. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. Could, I felt that they were a band that was kind of like doing what you were doing in the sense that just completely unique an Island unto themselves and what they're doing. A lot of Richmond music from that era, the old, you know, like the people who were, who were, you know, like the, the great bands from when, before Avail was even around, you know what I mean? Like, um, I mean, even there is a ton of great bands from Richmond then, and everybody was doing their own thing. It's hard to explain. Um, and I can't like go through the whole list without leaving people out. So let's just leave it at honor roll. Um, but like, a, they're a perfect, perfect example of just Richmond not caring what people think of the music that they make. And in fact, what's important about Richmond is you could have the greatest musical status, period. And people are going to treat you just like they treat everybody. Mm. You're not looked up upon. You're just looked equally at. And I appreciate that, oh, you know, like the, the way that the streets have always been in Richmond and hopefully still are. It, it's fascinating to think about how geography affects music and scene developments and stuff like that. And I think, you know, like I, I, I talked to Clem Burke from Blondie the other day and just talking about his experience in New York and kind of New Jersey where there is such a music industry and there's like such a, like a defined path and system to try and, and follow. a competition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it makes, it makes bands super competitive. Like Patty Smith hated Blondie and vice versa. Like they did not get along. And wow. That's so weird. Yeah, but it, it, like, and it's, I, I'm sure it's by factor that they were made to be competitive because they're competing for the same spot in this music industry to make it. Whereas, like you're saying, Richmond, you know, not that there aren't incredibly successful and hugely important bands that come out of Richmond, going back to Graven Image and Honor Roll and White Cross to like, you know, yourselves and Four Walls Falling, everything. And but, then to, to today with like Guar and Lamb of God. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah, like bands that change change the, the Sonics forever, but there's doesn't seem to be that sort of competition to make it or to get to that nobody, spot. Nobody here is competitive. And, you know, like I'm from the era that when you're walking down the street and you see a punk, <laughs> you stop and talk. Mm -hmm. Thomas Barnett, Strike Anywhere. The very first time I met him, <coughs> I was walking down over by Monroe Park near VCU. And it was probably 1990. And I don't remember what shirt he was wearing. But I saw a, a punk person wearing a punk shirt. And I stopped and said hello. And we've been friends ever since. We're both also in bands that, you know, exceeded any ex personal expectations. But has Thomas not competed? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I can't imagine not being friends with him do you know yeah. what i mean because yeah. we were each trying to get ahead with yeah. our shitty three chord punk bands what a way to ruin a, a world you know but yeah i think you're right though the geography that's a, it's an interesting perspective and aspect of it is like yeah like why bother competing with peers and people you care about um to, to for personal gains that doesn't sound very punk to me no, and it's like that industry that needs that competition and, and thrives off that competition because that's the way that industries are set up. And I think the the lack of industry, and that's, you know, going back to what we were talking about, where the, the, the universalification of the punk experience, the hardcore experience, is it's like now there is a defined path to success because technology allows it and, and whatnot. What is the defined path? Tell me. I'm struggling. <laughs> getting, getting. Well, I think, I think. I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. I'm not struggling. I just don't care. We need to take, we need to talk. My path to success is not giving a <laughs> exactly. fuck whether I succeed or not. Well, I but think that's. I'm curious. What is the path now? Well, I think getting, getting on TikTok, going viral, getting the right placement in a music video. Like these things are now that were not possibilities for avail in the nineties yeah. are now possibilities for bands. How do people do that though? 
They well, just, I don't like, know. Do I'm mean, fucked up. Shit. Don't ask me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, and I'm in Tim Barry. <laughs> <laughs> and and the veil. <laughs> yeah. Like I think. <laughs> but I, I, I am curious because I got kids who play music. You know, like they're super interested. My daughter Leela is writing songs. She's so good. You know, like, and I'm not going to encourage her to do the wackiest thing she can do. She doesn't even know what TikTok is yet. Thank fucking God, but it's coming. <laughs> well, there's been, uh, do you know, you know, King Con in the shrines, you know, Arish from uh, King Con and barbecue show. And he was in the spaceship back in the day. Okay. Not personally, but yeah. It like, you know, I've saw, you know, I've played many shows with him over the years to, you know, he played definitely packed rooms and all that sort of stuff. But like, you know, it still was of a ceiling. Uh, but now he had a TikTok hit out of nowhere, and I think he's done better off that than any of these shows. How does that even happen? I don't even know. I got on TikTok. Y'all can find me on TikTok. I'm not joking. Okay. I, was talking, talking to, I was on tour with Brian McTurnan not long ago, the, the fantastic human and fantastic producer and fantastic singer of Be Well. And um, he kind of could see his jaw drop when I was like, yeah, I'm on TikTok. And he's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I was like, all I'm doing, I was like, all I'm doing is claiming my name. Yeah, yeah. And and I honestly was like, I think y'all should probably just do the same thing because you know people just gobble up people's um, names these days. Like you can't even like. I just posted a few things so people know it's actually me. The the moment I can't keep up, can't keep up with any of this shit. Uh, uh, Actually, I'm sorry. I should hold on. Let me rephrase that. I can keep up with all that shit. I just choose not to. Mm-hmm. I really, going back to it, I don't find any joy in it. Um, you, somebody said, I love to run. I run every morning. And my neighbor, who I, who's one of my closest friends, is like, you don't wear earbuds? You don't listen to podcasts? And I was like, how the hell would I hear the birds? You know what I'm saying? Like, how would I know if that was a skink or a squirrel over there in the, in the leaves? How would I, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. why would I voluntarily choose to to not use one of my senses you know like i and again like if the, i find happiness without it check me out on tiktok <laughs> <laughs> wait till wait till my uh my dance routine to uh tim barry comes out i'm gonna get some hot hot dance going and it's gonna oh, be watch out i've only danced a few times in my life and every time i've ended up in jail so that gives you an example of how drunk i've been when that's happened <laughs> uh well tim this has been amazing and i really don't want to prolong this extended screen time too much but i i gotta say will you will you come back at some point and do a part two? Cause there's so much more for us to talk about. Yeah. I, I honestly like this is, this is going, this is a really nice conversation. I, I do think we should follow up because I don't know that we've done anything other than tested each other's, um, uh, not tested. What is, how, how would I say this? We're getting to know each other. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I definitely, there's a lot, there's a lot we can talk about. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I, and before you go though, I have a special request writing question. Uh, recently I was talking to Travis, a little ugly main, uh, Uh I'm not familiar with him, but he is a, a massive fan like myself. And he told me that I had to ask you for your Gigi Allen story. Do I have a Gigi Allen story? He said he said you had some story about when Gigi Allen played Richmond. No, and... that's Bo. You have to ask Bo that. <laughs> he told me too. <laughs> no, no, it's Bo. No, no, that is a Bo story. No, one hundred percent. And the truth is, is that I have a Gigi Allen story, but the story that he's referring to is a Bo story. Okay, <laughs> that's what he wants. The thing is, is that. Bo and I have shared a lot of experiences and they have blended in, in so many of our stories because we've shared them. A lot of times they've, people are confused about who was there for what I can tell a Gigi Allen story. That's cool. But the story that Travis wants to hear is the one that Bo is going to tell. Okay. So, you need to get him on. I do need to get. I need, <laughs> do need to Sorry, get I'm getting over. I'm getting over COVID, so I'm, that's why I keep coughing. Um, uh, it, and it's going to involve Bo, who is a scrawny 
little skinhead deserter from the Navy doing security at a Gigi Allen show in Richmond. Okay. And it's going to be the buildup to doing that. It's, it's, it's an interesting story, especially, you know, when in knowing Gigi Allen's history and uh, the possibilities of, it, of the things that happen at his live shows. But it's mostly the buildup to it that makes it interesting, not the show itself. There are so many of stories from that era. Like, um, um, he would, Bo would be good to get on here. Like, um, like the time the dwarves came through Richmond and the singer threw a mic stand and hit one of the local girls in the head with it. And then the next time they came through, the show was sold out. If you get catch my drift. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like the first show, there ain't that many people. Then the next time around, the whole city's there. It's the sellout you don't want when it's you show the up. Sellout that you don't want. And then the mob that was trying to, to find their vehicle to incapacitate it flips Guar's van because they <sighs> they think they because they didn't they oh, thought no. it was I mean the stories are endless. That weird era of uh, of early '90s, mid '90s punk in Richmond is like the most street level sort of. It's very interesting. Very interesting time period. Like when, when the Nazis would come in town and bricks would fly, and it was just very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> Bo's got a lot of those stories. It's interesting also when you think about how much like there's these sort of positive icons that people kind of put on pedestals and and worship. There's also these sort of like anti-hero people that were just villains but people loved them for being villains like Gigi Allen I guess would be the the biggest most mainstream example of this thing but like you know even the mentors or even the dwarves at times like they were known for being bad and that was or, or doing bad things and that was what made them popular. yeah and they were a, a, a part of something that doesn't seem to exist anymore which was shock rock yeah it was the idea you know like the mainstream versions like Alice Cooper, but like the, um, you know, like the idea is to, it's the, the chaos that is possible that induces the turnout at the live show, whether Gigi Allen just runs around in a diaper and screams for a little bit or not. It's the fact that he might stick a microphone in his ass. Yeah. And, he, and, yeah, and then you might have to clean that microphone off. <laughs> Bo. <laughs> well, I, I need not worry about cleaning off any microphones after having you here. You've been a perfect, perfect guest. And anytime, Tim, you want to come back on, right. please know the door is always open. Uh, I appreciate it. Holler at me and we'll do it again. Let's do it again soon, actually, because th this is fun. <laughs> Thank you, Tim, for coming on the show. And as you heard right there, Tim will be back. We're going to be doing it hopefully sooner rather than later because, oh, man. Uh, also, uh, if you want to see me on Instagram, I'm going to be posting a lot of the stuff from my Avail collection because I've got some cool stuff and uh, some weird oddities. So I'll be posting them throughout the week as well. Um, but I think that's it for today's episode. Uh, once again. Uh, check out uh, Tim solo stuff and check out Avail in a town near you if they're coming because whew, it can be life-changing. Uh, this punk thing can always be. It's it's life-changing. Coming up in a few short days, another life-changing episode of Turned Out of Punk, this time with a, a musician beloved by my father and by my children for different aspects of his career from the band Nerf Herder, or around my children's hearts, also known as the guy that wrote It's Raining Tacos, Perry Grip will be on the show. And this is a really interesting interview. Goes to a lot of interesting places, weird places. We talk about Weezer, we talk about, we go, we go places on this one. Um, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Well, that is it for this episode. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different races and different faiths and different nationalities because at the end of the day, this stuff is not political. This is just basic human rights stuff. People deserve to be able to live free from hatred and violence and discrimination. So if there's an organization that they're doing something that you agree with, get involved. You know, lend your time. 
if you've got a little extra money, I'm sure you could lend financial support. But just just do something. Get involved if you uh, if you feel inspired to. Speaking of getting involved, get involved in making your own culture because anyone can do this stuff. Start a band. Start a fanzine. Start start something. You never know where it's going to go. And you never know who it's going to impact and how many places it's going to go. And sometimes you won't even know while it's happening. Like like Tim kind of said, while, while you know, you're, you're doing that, but you are and you will. So just go out and do it. Anyone can do this stuff. Try meditating. I didn't really believe in it. And I know that makes me kind of foolish, but I, I started doing it and trying it and it really does help. So there's apps, there's YouTube videos, just, just try it a few times and stick with it and see, because what's the worst that can happen? You waste some time and you do some deep breathing. It doesn't seem that bad. Sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. It's literally dead weight. So sign those cards. It can change lives. I've seen it happen firsthand. And I think that's it. Thank you for listening. I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.